Pulp MX Network Production. Pulp MX fans, we're 550 plus shows and counting thanks to your support of our sponsors. Get the Pulp MX app for iOS and Android today. Save money with discount code PULPMX at BTOsports.com and click the Amazon banner on PULPMX.com for all other online purchases. It's the BTOsports.com Steve Mathis Show. Presented by Fox Racing on RacerXOnline.com. The original Moto Podcast. Featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast presented by Fox Racing. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in for another episode. The races are over, but the podcasts are not. BTOsports.com, use the code PulpMX when you're checking out to save yourself money. With those guys, of course, they've got the uh, Monster Energy Cup coming up with rider Davey Millsaps, Andrew Short, Justin Brayton, all on the BTO Sports KTM team. Brand new website, mobile phone friendly, great prices, great international shipping. Check them out. Use the code to save you money. And, of course, foxhead.com. Visit local authorized Fox dealer, the global innovation leader in motocross racewear, continuing the relentless pursuit to innovate and elevate. Their Flex Air stuff is out now. Dungy, Roxon, just some of the guys that wear Fox Racing. And uh, we thank those two guys for uh, making this podcast happening on Racer X. Of course, I'm Steve Mathis, as most of you know. Also with me on the line is a... Uh, a motocross broadcast legend, actually, I should say motorcycling broadcast legend. He has his Dave Despain show on Mav TV now. He's the host of Wind Tunnel Forever, host of Moto World, called the sport inside and out uh, for, for many, many, many years. And uh, I'm happy to have him on the show today to talk about his long career. And um, uh, welcome, Dave Despain. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, great to have an opportunity to talk to the Ruther X fans. Great. Uh, Great book, great medium, uh, yeah. great podcast, obviously, and uh, I'm happy to have the opportunity. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's neat to uh, to talk to you because, like I said, I mean, I'm 40, and so I grew up with you know you you're being the voice that I'm I'm watching, uh, whether it's uh, Supercross, Motocross, Moto World, or anything else, and uh, not to make you feel old or anything, but uh, you know you <laughs> d- you did that stuff. I wasn't going to so mention that, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. Um, so hey, let's t- let's talk current things first. Uh, how's everything going on the on Mav TV on the Dave Despain show? You moved, uh, you know, your your wind tunnel show was it was incredibly popular, and uh, moved it kind of moved everything over to Mav TV. Maybe a little more focused on the uh, motorcycle end of things. But uh, how's it going? Well, it's good. Um, you know, the the whole demise of uh, speed as a network and, and wind tunnel as a show was a bit odd and. Uh, yeah, unfortunate, mm-hmm. but um, you know the show. As far as wind tunnel is concerned, we had an eleven-year run, and that's that's pretty unheard of for a show like that. So I had no complaints there. I felt like uh, I still like talking to racers, so I called the Mav TV people. And long mm-hmm. story short, we made a very quick deal to do twenty-six episodes a year. The thing that's great about it is, and 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 I didn't really appreciate it until I kind of got into it the the fun in being able to do really in-depth interviews 
as opposed to, for example, the wind tunnel interviews, which were always two or three questions, four or five if we were lucky, mm-hmm. because of the nature of the format. We had to cover a lot of different terrain, and originally the the one-hour version and then toward the end the half-hour version. So there was never a lot of time to dig into you know the depths of the stories mm-hmm. with the guests. And that's the great thing about this show. It's a half-hour with one or in the case of, you know, uh, the four sisters from drag racing, two guests, mm-hmm. and you really have the opportunity to ask all the questions. Plus, it's taped; it's not live, so you get to do forty-five minutes or an hour with the guest, pick the best of the answers, and I really like the the result. I think it's a great opportunity to gain some real insight into what makes racers tick. So 8.30 Eastern time, uh, Eastern and Pacific time on MAV-TV. If you don't have MAV-TV, that's the biggest problem we have right now is distribution. Mm-hmm. Call your cable company. Praise hell. <laughs> if you have Dish Network, I don't have a solution for that one yet. Uh, don't blame me. And, uh, I, you know, Locust Oil owns it. They've got deep pockets. I think that the network will survive and, and thrive yeah. and provide an opportunity for some of that programming that was on speed to, to have a home. Yeah, the, you're right about that. The decision for speed was weird. It did seem it was a great channel. And, uh, it, uh, yeah, they decided to go, you know, a separate way or, or switch the, the programming. It was, it was weird. Um, folks at MAV-TV, of course, uh, partnered up with the uh, Locust Oil Pro Motocross Series, and they're running – the um, the first motos online there and and uh, so it's it's nice to see those guys are involved in motocross. Also, of course, the title sponsor of the series as well. So uh, the Mav TV guys, it's nice synergy there. And when it comes to guests for your show, be it motocross, road race, dirt track, whatever, uh, do you do you decide how who, who picks the guests and who picks the topics and all that? Well. Uh- to be honest, uh, we're not able to be as selective as we might like. Mm-hmm. The uh, the studio is in Southern California, so we're limited to guests that are either there or that we can get to come there for whatever reason. Right. Um, we did, we were long on Supercross guests this year because obviously that series uh, spends a lot of time in that part of the world, and that's that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been underrepresented in road race and dirt track. Uh, I'd fix that with a wave of the wand if I could. And of course, we got to keep in mind that we're dedicated to the same notion that uh, was was kind of the mantra at uh, at Wind Tunnel, which was that we cover all kinds of motorsports. Mm-hmm. So while we've been fortunate to be motor motocross heavy this year, um, we have to balance that against all the other racing disciplines in which we like to think our viewers are interested. So uh, it's a bit of a compromise, Mm -hmm. but I've certainly got a wish list of all the current (laughs) big names in the motorcycle world that, uh, you know, that we'd like to have on. Now, obviously, this being Racer X, we're going to keep it moto heavy and supercross heavy and all that. But I do want to get your opinion. You're a dirt track guy. Um, from what I know, that's one of your loves, and obviously road race, you follow that as well, and you're into that. Well, you're into everything with two wheels, but what's your feelings on how road race now? Obviously, I think Wayne Rainey, and, and forgive me if I get any of this wrong, I'm a moto guy, but Wayne Rainey's group has started a new a new uh, sanctioning body uh, after AMA Pro was sold to DMG, and of course, we know the MX Sports uh, is involved with DMG on the motocross side, but road racing itself in America. 
really lost its foothold in the last uh, you know half dozen dozen years. What's your take on that and where it went and why it happened and is it ever going to come back? I'm absolutely baffled by the fact that it happened and why it happened. Um, well, I'm baffled by part of it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm baffled. I'm baffled that that DMG allowed it to happen. Um, my perception is that the you know the fatal flaw was that DMG essentially assigned the the series that's Daytona Motor uh, Daytona Motorsports Group. Right. They run sports car racing. They run they run what's left of the motorcycle racing that they didn't have to sell back. Um, you know, it's the France family. In theory, they're the geniuses behind NASCAR. They're the people who are supposed right. to know. They know how, racing, right? How racing should work, right? Um, for whatever reason, they handed control of the series over to Roger Edmondson, who had a history with uh, AMA Road Racing. He sued the AMA over who owned what back mm-hmm. when he was running road racing as a contractor. And he apparently had some old scores to settle, and he settled them <laughs> in a big hurry by driving the manufacturers out of the series. Yeah. You can argue factory involvement in racing a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that factory involvement in racing is universally great and the factory should be allowed to do whatever they want to do because there are downsides to that. But in Supercross, in Motocross, in road racing up until this disaster, let's face it, the big draw was the big semis. The big teams, the big bucks, the big stars, the big salaries, all the things that make the series big league. Now, had they had a plan to drive the factories out and replace them with big independent sponsors a la NASCAR, where, you know, consumer products with big bucks come in and you've still got the semis and the teams and the bikes and the stars, that would be great. Fact is, they didn't have any of that. Right. So they basically took a serious professional series and turned it into a privateer club race series and damn near killed it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, because the AMA and Lord knows I got my share of problems with the AMA too. Um, you know, they had the, the, the cojones to stand up and say, you know what, you're defacing our brand. We want this back. And in turn sold it, gave it, I don't know, if money ever changed hands in any of this. Yeah, it probably wasn't worth uh, much at that point. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. uh, to, the, to the Rainey Group, and, and I call him the Rainey Group. I don't know his investors. I know Chuck Asplund, who is kind of his right-hand man. Uh, Wayne has tremendous credibility. Uh, his, it, it's, I, I worry a little bit because he's perceived as this, savior of Mm -hmm. the sport and so far i think he's been that but that's you know that's a big load to carry particularly uh as bad off as the series was when he took it over but he's got universal credibility universal respect people are willing to give him time and the benefit of the doubt him and his group so i think they'll succeed i think they have succeeded to some extent, mm-hmm. you know, they, they put on more races than we had last year. Uh, they've sorted out some of their initial teething problems. They don't have enough bikes yet, but uh, there are indications that, you know, more bikes are, are coming. 
there was a certain amount of wait-and-see attitude, which is to be expected, mm-hmm. again, given how low the series had gone. So you know, my hopes are high, um, and and I, there is no better person than Wayne to take on that project. So I wish him luck. Yeah, they just just about killed it off, but they didn't quite finish the job. So luckily, Wayne can get the pieces up and going. And you know, I uh, I was a factory mechanic uh, for many many years um, in the sport, and I worked for Yamaha. And so I got to help out at the 200 here and there. Um, I went to some different road races because obviously, you know, this was the Salvo, Gobert. Um, geez, I forget mm-hmm. the other guys' names, but anyways, I was around that era in the early 2000s, and um, you know. You, you see, I saw what it was. I saw what the 200 was. I saw what a big deal it was. And, uh, yeah, and talk about a sport that, that's, you know, just kind of fallen off. And, it's, and, and like I said, I'm not a huge fan. I don't follow it that closely. But it's you never want to see that happen, you know. So It goes to show, it reminds us how tenuous racing success can be. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at NASCAR. Five years ago, it was the absolute King Kong of American motorsports, mm-hmm. and it still is. But look at the grandstands. You know, yeah. I mean, in a matter of a handful of years, they went from weekly sellouts to you know half a crowd everywhere they go. Yeah. So you know, there there there's a lot behind that, but it reminds us that you really got to have smart people on their game, highly motivated doing things right uh, in this business or success can slip out of your grasp very, very quickly. Yeah, and, you know, in the motocross side, MX Sports, they have a lot of people, hey, two strokes are great, two strokes rule. I don't know how much you follow that big debate. But for whatever reason, you know, three, well, for sales reasons, three of the OEMs have stopped making two strokes. And fans, a segment of fans clamoring for, for, you know, 252 strokes to race against 254 strokes. And from what we've seen, the two strokes are probably a little better. So I always say to these guys, well, if you're going to introduce the rules to make a bike that three of your partners don't make, look at what happened in road racing. They just said, see Mm -hmm. you later to the rules. We don't want to compete under these rule guidelines. And that's what will happen in motocross if you bring these two strokes back. Now, whether why they went away, that's a whole other debate. But if you open it up to say, bring them back in. Don't be surprised if three of your partners say, we're going racing elsewhere or we're not spending that money. It can happen. Uh, I, think, yeah. I, think that's, I think that's very realistic. And, you know, I love two strokes. When I was trying to be a racer, you know, I had a Boltaco, speaking of being old, <laughs> um, you know. So, and, and, you know, we understand the technical advantages and, and all the rest of that, the cost of maintenance, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But... You know, you, you, that none of that debate, as you point out very accurately, changes the present reality, which is that three of the companies don't make them anymore. They have shifted to four strokes for better or for worse, and so that's the hand you're dealt. And if on behalf of some sort of nostalgic, uh, you know, line in the sand, someone were to make the decision, well, you know what, two strokes are better, we're going back. Yeah. Uh, I think it'll. I think it will work out exactly the way you described. I don't think you can swim. I don't think even with two-stroke power, you can swim upstream <laughs> fast enough yeah. to to win that one. So it would be as much as I would love to see it. Uh, I think it would be a suicide mission, um, and I think that probably the best alternative is 
you know, some sort of, you know, like nostalgia drag racing. Mm-hmm. They, you know, there, there's, there are lots of reasons why drag racing has evolved in the directions that it has. And, and nostalgia drag racing is a great opportunity for those who like the way it used to be to continue to celebrate the sport with cool events and cool vehicles and cool stars and all the rest of that. Maybe that's a model for, for two-stroke motorcycle competition mm-hmm. and not necessarily just motocross, although I think that the likelihood that you're going to see a TZ750 class in, <laughs> in, uh, in road racing is pretty unlikely. Yeah. But you, you get my point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it really is. An, let's face it. It really is a nostalgic game. For better or worse, the four strokes have won that fight, and there's no point whatsoever in trying to convert the premier classes back to how many years has it been now? Right. Back to what it was 10 or 15 years ago. That would just be suicidal. We're talking to AMA Hall of Famer Dave Despain here on the BTO Sports Racer X podcast presented by Fox Racing. Uh, Dave, as a guy that was uh, working for the AMA PR department in you know the mid seventies and late seventies, and I want to thank Davey Coombs for that info, uh, the Ultimate Bench Racer, because um, it wasn't on your P- Wikipedia page, I don't believe. But uh, as a guy that was there back in the day, when you see Supercross now and what it's become, are you? Do you like it? Do you are you amazed? Um, what's your thoughts on the spectacle that is Supercross now? And this is from a guy that literally has seen the sport grow. You know, what do you think nowadays? I am amazed. Uh, I think there was a certain sense back then, and you know, I saw the the first Super Bowl of motocross when Mike Goodwin drove up in his floor length ermine <laughs> fur coat and his Excalibur. Uh, and climbed out for the press conference, and everybody was thinking, wow, this guy's something. Right. Uh, you know, so I guess I've seen the whole history of it. There was, there was, I think, some feeling at the, first of all, everybody knew, everybody knew it was going to be something big. I mean, that first mm-hmm. Super Bowl of motocross was, which was, that's what it was called back then, was really, really outrageous. And with Tribes winning it and all the stories around it, I mean, it was, it was a real attention getter. But as, as as it grew and as the fights for control of it developed, mm-hmm. uh, and that gets way too complicated to get into <laughs> here, but yeah. let's face it, you know, it, there were there were some incredible power struggles in which the AMA was you know, usually on the wrong side, <laughs> um, yeah. as they so often are. Um, or, uh, but, or Mickey Thompson, also on the wrong side as well. So well, yeah, yeah. There you go. But it, it, I think there was some concern about whether it would have longevity. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think there was a real reservation that you know this thing has the potential to blow itself up. And then when you know Goodwin, you know, unless you disbelieve the jury, killed Mickey Thompson, uh, you know that only made it worse. By then, the thing I think had legs and was and, and was pretty much unstoppable. But mm-hmm. long story short, through that whole power struggle to get control of it i think there was some very real concern that the series could shoot itself in the foot it it looks so big to us Mm -hmm. and it is big but if you compare it to the nfl or major league baseball those buildings are accustomed to being full 
week in and week out. You know, so for us to go to a different building every week and have it be full, that's a huge deal. But for any one of those individual stadiums to say, hey, I like Supercross, it's great, we make money, everybody's happy. But if I don't have a Supercross, that's not going to affect my bottom line all that much. I think there was some concern that, that you know, the series could overplay its hand. And the bottom line is it didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's managed to be very, very effective and very, very successful. It has sustained the high level of fan interest over, what are we coming up on, 40 years now? Yeah, I think so, right? Lately. Yeah. Um, and that's impressive. That That is very impressive. I think it's it, from, and again, I'm not there every week, but mm-hmm. from what I see, it, it's healthy and I don't see any, I, I worry that they hurt too many of the stars. I, mean, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a big concern. You don't want your big name guys sitting on the sidelines, you know, with broken bones. Um, it, motocross by nature is risky. Um, the big jumps are spectacular and scary, and that's part of the appeal. And if you take that appeal back, how much is it going to affect the crowd? I don't have the answer to that. But I do know that, you know, if you're a James Stewart fan and on any given week, the odds of him being there, not just because of injury, but in in much of his career because of injury, uh, the chance of him not being there is pretty high. Well, that reduces my desire to go. So I think that is probably the one major concern I have about Supercross now um, compared to the many that I had years ago. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think the series struggled. Uh, No RV, Ryan Villapoto, you know, uh, retiring or going to the GPs and James under suspension. I think the series uh, struggled a bit this year in terms of attendance, in terms of of, uh, flash, in terms of uh, interest. And, you know, you you look look at the other sports, and really, even if you want to just compare motorsports, um, maybe only the NFL, if you take all sports, loses its stars to injuries as much as Supercross. It's uh, it happens every almost every single year. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know I think that's a problem that, and I don't have a solution, but yeah, yeah. Um, and it you know when you look at the number of the accidents and injuries that occur in training mishaps that sort of tells me that it's cultural that you know the the guys know what they know what they know how to practice they know what they've got to do to practice they've got to develop the same skills and run the same risks that they do in the actual competition i don't think you can train correctly probably i'm no old and baker but i don't think you can train (laughs) substantially differently than the way you race yeah so they're out there doing the things that they know they need to do and they're getting hurt so some way has to be found to modulate that risk downward without, you know, taking away the excitement of the show. And I think it can be done. I'd like to think it can be done. I'm not the guy to do it. Right. Smarter minds than mine. Um, but that that would be my one, you know, lingering concern about the well-being of the of the sport. When uh, when you were AMA uh, PR guy in the in the mid seventies. Uh, Davey Coombs sent me something to uh, to talk to you a little bit about, something you wrote here. Uh, Mike Goodwin has promoted a bit of everything, concerts, motorcycling, racing, real estate, and more. Before he became involved in motorcycles, the Rolling Stones concert in Yankee Stadium ranked as his biggest promotion. But it now looks as though Goodwin may be remembered l- longest for creating this phenomenon of quote-unquote supercross and bringing to the Los Angeles Coliseum the Super Bowl of motocross. 
Now, hundreds and thousands of dollars have been spent debating on who owns the word Supercross, and something DC told me was he thinks maybe you did it. Maybe Dave Despain created the word Supercross, as he seems to think that this was one of the earliest mentions ever, if not the earliest mention of the term Supercross. So congrats, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't comment on that because my legal team are still trying to get me the royalties for that. It's uh, it's been forty years now, so I'm not I'm not holding out a lot of hope. Right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't I don't if I did it, I did it accidentally. Uh, yeah. I you know I've, I've heard that one other time and and uh, didn't go back and do the research to see if somebody else had mentioned it earlier. But it's hard to believe that I or anybody else would out-bombast Mike Goodwin, and that's sort of what that would say. He, he definitely called the first one the Super Bowl of motocross. How the transition in right. Supercross came about, I don't know. But if I, uh, whether, whether or not I deserve the credit, I'd be happy to take it. Right, yeah, that's, that's a real cool story anyways. I mean, I, like, like Davey said, people went back and looked and looked and tried to f- figure it out because, uh, you know, as people were fighting over this name, as you mentioned with, yeah. earlier, you know, in the, all the infights of, of uh, three or four different promoters over the years of who ran Supercross. So, um, that, got, that got to be a very big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it reminds me, it's off topic a little bit, but it reminds me of the, of the CART IRL fight where right. you had this bizarre situation where the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the series that raced at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was not allowed to be called IndyCar Racing because they had sold that name to CART uh, over some span of time. Uh, there was a there was a contract that went through such and such a date that said they owned the name. Yeah. So the so IndyCars did not race at Indianapolis. Cars that did not race at Indianapolis were called IndyCars. Supercross nice. didn't get quite that weird, but the fight right. over the name got to be really big because there were a couple of occasions where, you know, there were going to be rival series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big, this was after good one, I think. I don't Yeah. No, there was uh, well, all of that in the late nineties. Yeah, in the late nineties, there was Jam Motorsports, AMA Pro, awarded them the series out kind of under Live Nation or Clear Channel's noses, and it was another another battle in the courtrooms or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, if you were if if you were going to be the series, you needed to own the name supercross if you were going to be the upstart series well that was going to be a whole different matter and i you know i may or may not have uh have been a smart guy at the time but one of those and this i had forgotten about i haven't thought about this in years at one point in that battle the the ama seriously discussed promoting its own series and i was on some professional racing sort of steering committee at that time. And I suggested that what they should do, what the AMA should do was go to, uh, international speedway corporation, the France family, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, uh, speedway motorsports, the Bruton Smith's organization, Roger Penske, who at the time still owned racetracks and make a deal to run supercross races in the infields right. of the NASCAR track yeah. because they were, you know, that sure. Yeah. It, the football stadium's probably better, 
but if but not necessarily so. I mean, look at the success of the Daytona Supercross. Right. Uh, and if you've got the stars and you've got the factory teams and you've got the name and now you've got the venues and the promotional capability that goes with those venues, let's do it. You know, let's let's go head on with you know and and uh, you know and win this fight. Let's if we're going to have this fight, yeah. let's, do it. let's be in it to win it. Well, the the Japanese manufacturers, Honda, uh, were not particularly excited about that idea. Right. They kind of liked the way it was, and so that idea died on the vine, even though they sat on the board of trustees of the AMA. So, you know, whether or not they were, how do we put it, uh, honoring their fiduciary yeah. responsibility is probably another another topic of conversation. Oh, man. Yeah. I thought if, you, if you're going to compete, in the Supercross world, there's the way to do it. You're a trailblazer. First the name Supercross, and then, hey, let's team up with the Daytona people. You're, you're wow. <laughs> well, if going back to our conversation right. about DMG, that might not have been so smart after all. But <laughs> if you were talking about putting butts in the seats the way they mm-hmm. do for the Daytona Supercross, you know, 16 or 18 weekends a year. And, again, you get, you get out of the trap of having to run – during the football off season, mm-hmm. you could run the you know the schedule sure. could be whenever you wanted it to be. The yeah. Supercross season could run all year long. You could run, you know, you could alternate a Supercross one weekend, take two weeks off and run an outdoor national, take two weeks off and run another Supercross. I mean, it opened up so many possibilities mm-hmm. that don't exist or didn't exist. I thought it was a hell of an idea, but it didn't go anywhere. Um. So from AMA PR guy uh, and working for the AMA out of Ohio, how'd you make it into broadcasting? How did that transfer to you calling <laughs> calling uh, races? Uh, and, and actually, it's, it's incredible. Not only are you the, the play-by-play guy, sometimes you're the color guy over the years. It switched back and forth for, for you. you. You're a man of many different yeah. Uh, hats. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you the short version of the story. The two, the two key things to keep in mind are dumb luck, and utter bullshit. The story <laughs> let me write that down. Let me was, let me write that down as life goals. <laughs> when I when I was a sophomore, and my dad was a football player. He wanted me to be a football player. I was a terrible football player. Mm-hmm. I was always getting hurt. So I'm riding the bench with a couple broken ribs one cold rainy night. This is in Fairfield, Iowa, watching the team get beat. And I lo- notice up in the press box, a classmate of mine and his cute little girlfriend are up there in the warm, dry press box, and he's announcing mm-hmm. the football game. And I thought, you know what? He's got a better deal. i got to figure <laughs> out how to get his job. The way to get his job, you had to join the Speakers Club. The Speakers Club provided the football announcers. So I joined the Speakers Club, and sure enough, I got his job. The next thing that happened was the local – this will give you an idea how small a town and how small a radio station we're talking about – 250-watt daytime radio station, Fairfield, Iowa, on Saturday morning for an hour, would turn the place over to the high school speakers club, and we'd have our own little radio show, which was as amateur and Mickey Mouse as you could imagine. Mm -hmm. Well, that became my next gig, and I guess I was okay at it because one day the station manager came to me and said, you know what, we need somebody to work from 4 o'clock to sign off. How about you come up here when school's out and play records until oh, the end of the day? Perfect. So I got 16-year-old disc jockey job. <laughs> All right. Fast forward. I fall in love with motorcycles. I want to be a racer. I'm as bad at racing as I was at football, <laughs> but I figured out I'm pretty good at announcing races. So once I gave up my racing career, 
realizing I wasn't ever going to make a living at it, I went to work for the AMA, um, announcing races, writing press releases, doing mm-hmm. PR stuff, coming up with brilliant uh, solutions to supercross problems, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. In 1975, I've been there three or four years, we go to Daytona for the 200. ABC Wide World of Sports showed up at the last minute and did to do the 200 and didn't have an expert analyst. This, that, there's there's your dumb luck. I'm in the right place at the right time. And, and keep in mind, your a, utter, ABC Wild World of Sports is your the, utter bullshit. Yeah, it's the biggest my thing boss, ever. Go ahead. My boss looked the, C, looked the ABC producer in the eye and with a straight face said, you should use our guy Dave here. He's got a lot of electronic media experience. Okay. <laughs> I had worked at a 250-watt daytime radio station right, in Iowa right. when I was in high school. That's my electronic media experience. The producer said, tell you what, go with this cameraman, stand and face the camera, and in 45 seconds tell somebody who doesn't know anything about motorcycle racing why they should watch the Daytona 200. I thought, well, I can do that. So I rattled off 43 and a half seconds about these helmeted heroes roaring around this famous world, this world-famous speedway, faster than Richard Petty, inches from the concrete wall, protected only by a thin layer of cowhide, et cetera, et cetera. And they thought it was great. So they hired me on the spot, and my very first television show was <laughs> on ABC Wide World of Sports, Jeez. at the time the most popular and powerful sports yeah. show in the world, standing next to Keith Jackson, who was, you know, yeah. the, the, College the, football. the guy. Right. He was Mr. – and that was back in the era, you, you may not remember this, um, when they had those gold blazers yeah, with oh, yeah. the ABC crest on the pocket with yeah. the Century 21 agent. <laughs> and that was, my first, that was my first TV show. That's insane. That's like st- somebody starting out at 60 Minutes or something or, or NBC News at just first time ever. Like, that's just nuts. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Just absolute dumb luck. <laughs> and so when, you know, kids have asked me all the kids ask me all the time, well, how do I get your job? How do I get your job? And first I tell them, well, do I look that stupid? I got the best job in the world. You think I'm going to tell you how to come take it away from me? Yeah, really. But then in all seriousness, I don't have an answer for them, you know? Yeah. Should I go to broadcast school? I don't know. I mean, just do it the way I did. Be a really <laughs> bad motorcycle racer and this, and then just real, real lucky at being in the right place at the right time. Oh, wow. Did you meet Cosell or no? Or was it just Keith Jackson that day? <laughs> did not meet Howard Cosell. Um, got close to Howard Cosell. Uh, I think I don't remember the details of that. I mm-hmm. missed Howard by a day. It had something to do with Evil Knievel. Right. Um, when Evil was going to jump the canyon, uh, he ran a huge motocross race in conjunction right. with that failed canyon jump. And somewhere in the middle of that, beat up his business manager with a ball bat. <laughs> and Howard Cosell was in the middle of that some way. And I can't remember exactly how it was. But we were a day apart. I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That was uh, whenever I got involved in that. It was at a press conference or something, and somebody said, "Oh yeah, Howard was here yesterday." So uh, close, but no cigar on Howard uh, Cosell. Wow, it's already. I did meet. I did meet Evil Knievel. <laughs> oh, did you really? I just saw a documentary from him. Johnny Knoxville did a documentary, and it was warts and all. You know, it was a pretty interesting look. And then the Snake River jump is when his career started going downhill because. 
he, you know, he was under so much stress from maybe that he could die. He started being a, his true personality came out with the media, and they started turning against him. And yeah, then the yeah. then the baseball bat attack and all that. So yeah. it yeah. was yeah. interesting. I think there's I think there's probably truth in that. And the last time I saw I saw him, no, oh, well, it was when Robbie jumped the uh, the fountain. Oh when, yeah, when yeah. his son. Uh, that, <laughs> that's the only time I ever got a no, got nominated for a an ace award which is like the cable right, emmy right. yeah i was i was the pit reporter when robbie Knievel <laughs> jumped the uh jumped the fountains at uh, caesar's palace and of course dad was there trying to uh you know trying to figure out some way to milk some money out of that for himself and by that time i knew he was just kind of a pitiful old drunk gambler guy and it was yeah. it was too bad because whatever else you think about evil uh, he was quite the showman, uh, and you yeah. know the definitive motorcycle stunt guy. So it was it was sad to see it end that way for him. And uh, I still have you know a lot of a lot of good memories of uh, watching him jump those Harleys. Yeah, that was uh, pretty. And and be a dirt track sponsor. He, he sponsored. Uh, oh, he did. Gene Romero. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, for a while, Romero had red, white, and blue leathers, and Evil Knievel was his sponsor. Um, how'd you get into like either either the play-by-play or color into Supercross? Uh, I think the first time I remember was uh, uh, Larry Myers and yourself doing it in uh, 87, 88. Uh, I guess that was a Chet Burks thing maybe, or how did that come together? Boy, uh, it's been a long time. I don't and, – and, and a lot of different, you know – I was involved in in covering not just motocross and supercross, but motorcycle racing Mm -hmm. in general in a lot of different fashions. Uh, But ESPN was sort of the key to that because early on they had supercross. Uh, I had gone to work for them, and that's another sort of complicated story. But (laughs) I I started my regular television career, if you will, full-time television career with yeah. Turner Broadcasting back when it was Superstation WDBS. Yeah. And we had a six- or seven-year run there, and then the, now the, Turner got into a fight with the guys who owned the show that I was appearing on. And um, so they went to ESPN. And so the show aired on ESPN for several years, but I was not employed by ESPN. I was It was a contract Okay. ESPN just bought the show from these guys. Right. Well, then they got in a fight with the owners of the show, and ESPN said, we're done with those guys. We're taking the show off the air, but we like you. Would you like to come to work for us? Okay. And I said, yeah, maybe. But, you know, what do you have in mind? And they said, well, we, we'd, li- we'd, we'd like you to do um, sprint, sprint Cars and Midgets, which turned out to be Saturday Night Thunder, and – Obviously, you'd be the logical guy to do our motorcycle show, mm-hmm. which was then called Moto World, and which was hosted by my good friend Larry Myers. And I said, well, you know, I have a little problem with that because Myers is a pretty good friend of mine, and I don't want to take his job. And ESPN, being the bloodthirsty bastards that they are, said, well, we don't care very much about that. <laughs> we want you to do that show. So you're hired, and he's fired. Uh, Chet Burke's Productions at that time had just begun to do some motorcycle stuff. And so I went to Chet and said, look, I was sort of halfway partners with Chet at okay. that point. I said, we, we need to hire 
Myers because I'm taking his job <laughs> at ESPN, yeah. right. and, and I feel a little guilty about that. So we need to see if we can't keep Larry working, and uh, and it worked out great because right. Larry was just excellent and did years and years and years of great coverage. And as you pointed out, sometimes we'd work together. Sometimes he'd be the play-by-play guy and I'd be the analyst. Right, right. Sometimes I was the play-by-play guy and they brought in, gosh, David Bailey, Ricky Johnson. I don't remember who all worked with a lot of really great guys. So it's it was, it's kind of convoluted how those deals get made and a yeah. lot of them have kind of run together. But I remember taking Larry's job very clearly and, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> making sure with Chet that uh, – that he could still have a job because Larry and I have been friends a long time. Fortunately, we're still friends. I actually was responsible for Larry getting in the announcing business. He oh. was selling boots. He okay. was a high point, right, high point guy. guy right. When, yeah. You know, yeah. Back when Bob Hanna was, you know, the big star and mm-hmm. John Fenton was the high point importer and Larry worked for John and the old, um, mid Ohio motocross park mm-hmm. in, uh, up near, near the sports car track, near Mansfield, I guess it was. Pete Widener ran it. Um, Pete hired me to be motocross announcer. Okay. I knew more about flat track than I did about motocross, but, he, you know, Pete liked me, so he hired me. So what I would do, because I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't at the motocross races every week. I wasn't nearly as up to speed, but I knew Myers, and I knew Myers knew what was going on. So I'd drag Myers up there and quiz him on all the inside scoop that he knew because he was there every week selling boots to the guys. And after about three or four go-rounds of that, I said, you know what, Larry, you ought to just do this. (laughs) You're good at it. And I got, you know, I mean, I do all these flat track races and road races, and then one time, you know, one time a year I do a motocross race. You'd be much better at it than me, and you can pick up some extra money. And, you know, so long story short, that's how – he got started in the in the broadcast business. Oh, wow. So I didn't feel completely guilty about right. taking his job away from him four or five years later. See, but we're still friends. We both had great careers. And, yeah, you know, absolutely. It works out. See, I I knew I learned something new today. I thought Moto World was a Chet Burke's show that ESPN just bought and put on their network. Uh, from what I understand, then it was an ESPN show. It, it originated. Did well, it, it actually, it was it was uh, it was started by a guy whose name I won't mention because he's an evil human being. Okay, uh, and, and it was actually originally on the Nashville network. Oh, it was TNN. TNN. Yeah, and that's and Larry was first host. Okay, and then it ends up moving to ESPN, and uh, then that you know, so Larry okay. was. Larry was hosting it on ESPN when ESPN hired me, and then they put me Larry, into that right. slot. And Larry went to work for Chet, who at the time was producing. Sweet. Chet never produced Moto World. He was he was sort wow, of competing okay. with Moto World. All right, uh, he was doing road racing, a lot of dirt tracks. Eventually, um, ended up with a weekly uh, motorcycle show called uh, Bike Week. Uh, but that was later. That was in the late nineties. Yeah, that was about that's the time. Right. I actually went to. I actually went left ESPN and went to Speed Vision to be just of that show. So that was like ten years later. So you, Chad, Chad deserves a lot of credit as a guy who has put an awful lot of his own money and and effort and time into keeping 
motorcycle racing on television and still absolutely. does to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, doesn't get enough credit. You uh, so you would you would go to where would you go to do these supercrosses uh, to to watch them and do the play by play and same with Motor World. Where, where was it based out of back then? Um, Atlanta area. Okay, so yeah, you go you fly there every week. Chet's production company was in Atlanta. The other production company that will remain nameless was also uh, in Atlanta. So it was always. Yep. And I lived, you know, uh, I moved to Atlanta to do the Turner Broadcasting deal in 81 or 2. Okay. So you were there. So I was in the Atlanta area that, that whole time. I was gonna um, get to the. So, I was gonna get to whether the travel was killing you doing the motor world, the supercrosses, flying back, but you were already there. So I didn't really. Yeah. yeah, I was already in the in the neighborhood, right? And and you know the travel did get to be a problem later when I was having to do the uh, uh, the pre race show for NASCAR, for example. I would do Wednesday night midgets and sprints, or Thursday night midgets and sprints. Uh, and then back home for a day, and then back out to the NASCAR track for thirty-six weekends a year, and it got, you know, it got, yeah. it got pretty crazy. But fortunately, there were enough of those races in the Southeast that I could um, come home from Indianapolis, jump on my motorcycle, ride the bike to the uh, to the NASCAR races. When you were doing the races with with David Bailey, or um, or you were doing the the play by play with Art. Uh, or Art was the play-by-play guy. You're the color guy. At different times, um, what did you enjoy more? What did you like better? Did you did you enjoy being the expert or the guy throwing it to the expert? I didn't. I didn't pretend to be the expert. That was basically a deal where, you know, if if you've got Art and Spain, which one? And that's our team because that's mm-hmm. you know. These guys have got contracts, and and uh, we don't have to pay them much money. So that's the guys we're going to use. <laughs> which one should be the you know expert, and which one should be the play-by-play guy? And I had more experience calling races than Art did. Art was an excellent play-by-play guy, um, but I had more experience. Not anything that, in my mind, that remotely qualified me to be an expert analyst. Right. But that's the way it fell. So, you know, I wasn't going to turn down the work. Yeah, um, yeah, no doubt. But I absolutely, you know, was much better at play-by-play working with a real expert. Uh, and as I said, I was really fortunate to have a couple of three really good guys fill that expert analyst role. David was a delight to work with. Ricky Johnson was a delight to work with. So those were, uh, in terms of just assignments, those were really fun. And working with Larry was fun. I mean, I think, I think in that case, they made me the play-by-play guy and made Larry the expert analyst. If I'm remembering that correctly. uh, And uh, and that worked out great too, because he actually knew more about it than I did. That's, you know, I never claimed to be a real expert mm-hmm. on motocross and supercross because even even with that gig where you're you know you're the 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 anchor man for the whole series. Well, yeah, but you're the anchor man for a series that you never go to. Right. You know, yeah. I didn't. I would do the entire series and never go to a race. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty hard to be a real expert if you're never if you're never at the racetrack. Yeah, good point. I was always working some other show. You know, 
Uh, it did seem, watching the races with you and Larry, it really seemed like it was two buddies, you know, maybe with a beer cracked open, uh, calling, yep. uh, both exchanging yep. quips back and forth, uh, trying to make yep. each other laugh. Uh, you know, it did seem like a good old time when you two were in the booth together. And that was that was partly just the chemistry because Larry and I have that kind of relationship mm-hmm. and partly uh, sort of a considered plan because, you know, we both recognized that, you know, either of us could be sitting in the play-by-play chair and the analyst chair would be stronger with a name brand racer. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have that. We got each other. So <laughs> right. how are we going to do this? And we pretty much intentionally, I've always had, I've always had the attitude that people in my business tend to take themselves way too seriously and take <laughs> racing way too seriously. We all got in it because it's fun. And my, my undying philosophy is that it should continue to be fun. Um, you know, I just worked the Knoxville national sprint car race mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago and it was great fun. And that's, you know, to me, that's the essence of it. You know, all those people in the grandstands are there because it's fun. All those people watching on TV are there because it's fun. So let's just have fun with it. Not that we didn't take it seriously. We did right, take yeah. it seriously. But we tried very hard to make sure we were enjoying it in hopes that the folks at home would enjoy it, too. And I think it worked out pretty well. Speaking with uh, Dave Despain, AMA Hall of Famer, legendary motorcycling uh, and and just car racing uh, uh, broadcast legend here on the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast presented by Fox Racing. Listen to this commercial from Racetech Suspension and Dirt Cheap Helmets. Uh, use the code PULPAMX to save yourself money at Racetech to get your suspension work done. And use the code RIDERX at DirtCheapHelmets.com to save even more money. We'll be right back with Dave Despain. Hey, thanks for listening to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast presented by Fox Racing. Racetech people, Racetech.com. These guys have been in business for over 30 years, supplying racers, riders, and tuners with factory-level suspension and everyday racer. There's a lot of top suspension guys in the pits that got their start with Racetech. Trust me on this. There's more than a few guys that have learned underneath Paul Feed and gone on to, uh, to great things. Paul Feed, the original suspension guru. I guarantee you... And probably 82.7% of you people listening to this podcast need some sort of suspension work, whether it's uh, just a simple oil change with new bushings and seals, give your bike some love, whether it's the right spring rate for your weight and or speed, or maybe you just need some revalving on the machine to uh, help you uh, take first place in that Chicken Licks Raceway. Something something uh, on your bike needs attention for Racetech. I guarantee you. Freeze, Gilmore, some of the guys just using uh, Racetech, Privateer Proven. They work with uh, Ben LeMay also. They're back with Ben LeMay. And uh, they offer a full line of Racetech high-performance springs. These springs are called high-performance because they're extremely lightweight for their rates and feature the tightest tolerances in the industry. You want to save 10%? At uh, Racetech, go to PulpMX2015 when you order. You can save 10% at Racetech.com. And they're uh, proud sponsors of this podcast, and we thank you guys. All right, back to the show. DirtCheapHelmets.com is dedicated to protecting your head and your wallet. The site is hands down the coolest and easiest to use in the helmet world. DirtCheapHelmets.com is the one-stop shop to get helmets for you and everyone you love without breaking the bank. We have helmets for our grand opening starting at $40, and that includes free shipping. These are all new helmets that we get a great deal on and pass the savings on to the customer. 
This includes free shipping on all helmets and a no-hassle exchange policy. We have a wide range of brands including Fly, HJC, Chewy, G-Max, and more. Podcast customers can get 5% off these already smoking good deals by using promo code RIDERX. And we're back, BTOsports.com, RacerX Podcast, Dave Despain. Dave, thanks for your time so far. I appreciate it. Um, I'll, 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 I'll try to I'll try to hurry this up so I keep you I don't keep you much longer than an hour. Um, hey, so uh, one of the things like I deal with is you know I write weekly columns on RacerX. I do these podcasts. I have an internet radio show about the sport. Uh, I, I I get some grief from riders. They don't like some of the things that I say about their performance or their bikes or their teams or, or whatever. And I know you weren't at a lot of the races, but did you ever run into that? Did you did you did you get some guys that oh, weren't yeah. pumped? Like, talk about that a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, not not so much from the motorcycle guys. I'm trying to remember if I ever had a major run-in. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, none, none come to mind. Right. But those NASCAR prima donnas, <laughs> oh, it doesn't take much to get those boys bet out of shape. Right, right. And you got to go in the pits and yeah. deal with them, you know? You got to stand before them the next race or whatever you're at. And then... Well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the classic is Carl Edwards, because the first time we ever had Carl Edwards on wind tunnel, he literally had to go uh, he had moved into his apartment that day. Okay. He had not met anybody. He got he got this deal out of the blue and, you know, d- deserved it. I mean, he was he, he turned out to be a great race car mm-hmm. driver, not as great, I don't think, as he thinks he is, uh, or as other people thought that he was going to be, but a great race car driver. <clears throat> but he had just gotten this break, um, and, and Roush had hired him. Right. So he moved into this apartment. He didn't know anybody, and we got wind that he was in town and, and uh, might be good for a two-question phone interview. Okay. So we I don't remember all the details, but we got him on the phone. He had to go upstairs, knock on the door of his upstairs neighbor that he didn't know, and ask if he could borrow the phone so that he could do this television okay. interview. That's how, you know, that's yeah. where Carl was on the pecking order at that time. And it was a delightful interview, and he was very humble and very appreciative. And I suggested in my goodbye to him that in the NASCAR world, it was very difficult to maintain those traits, and it would just be delightful if he could manage to do that. And he promised that he would. Right. And I don't know, it was like two or three years later, he got in some silly little garage scrap with Kevin Harvick mm-hmm. and I made, I made some smart ass remark about it on the show and quickly got a call from Carl's handlers informing me that Carl would never ever oh. be on any TV show that I did again and I thought well didn't take didn't take Carl <laughs> yeah. long to uh, yeah. drink the prima donna Kool-Aid <laughs> like what about our talk what happened to our talk <laughs> It was yeah exactly, and it was you know I mean maybe it was uncalled for, but it was a, it was a it was a lighthearted mm-hmm. you know, making a joke of the situation. And obviously, he didn't think it was a joke. Well, you know, yeah. Carl could have uh, you know punched my lights out, but instead he elected to uh, just ban me. Somehow, I managed to get through the rest of my career without another Carl Edwards interview. But yeah. uh, you know that's. That's not atypical. It doesn't take much to get crossways with those guys, and they have so many people wanting a piece of them, so right. many media people wanting an interview, 
that, you know, they don't get on my show. It doesn't matter to them. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No sweat. And I get that. I mean, it's not like my show was the most important thing that ever happened in their life. It's not that big a deal. But it's just they 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 really I don't know. I, I think I think that NASCAR part of that empty seat thing we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. I think is the fact that the drivers have become so separated from the fans. They love to talk about how connected they are with the fans. And, and the reality is the closest you're ever going to get to one of those guys is, uh, you know, if you stand in line and pay $5 to get one of their autographs, that's, that's unfortunate in my, right. in my mind, because once you lose that emotional connection with the fan, then the fan is less inclined to go buy that hundred dollar ticket. And you end up with Bristol being half full instead of the, you know, the toughest right. ticket in, uh, in motorsports. Yeah, I remember on Wind Tunnel, whenever you had a moto guy on, we were like, yeah, Dave's going back to his roots. Let's let's watch it. A moto guy on, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Because, yeah. you, you know, yeah. Yeah, you did what, it was, what got ratings. which was I loved it. You right. know, because if, if, if it was that, it was getting back to uh, my roots. But also because, for the most part, even the guys that had, you know, two, three, four, five million dollar contracts maintained that connection. Mm-hmm. They didn't get the prima donna disease and i mean there were exceptions to that but course, for the most yeah. part um you know they they stayed pretty in touch with their fan base and i think that's one of the reasons that they you know continue to have those contracts and and be so successful and be so popular yeah i get these guys that are upset at me and i go hey it's just my opinion i could be wrong it doesn't mean it's like it's not it's my opinion get over it like whatever well, who cares and, and, you know <laughs> They need they need to understand that a uh, it, you know if you've risen to the level of having you know those outlets that that uh, you know give you that up that forum uh, to express that opinion then your opinion's worth something and there are some number of fans out there who listen to you if you are critical of a rider that rider should a Think about what you said and wonder if there's any merit to the criticism. B, if he doesn't think there's any merit to the criticism, he should come up to you and tell you that, you know, hey, you know, I don't agree with you. Here's why I don't agree with you. But you got your job and I got my job. And if we both do our job, more people are going to be up there in the grandstand. So in the end, we're both on the same side. Uh, See you next week. I mean, it it, it doesn't become some, you know, you you can have, a contentious relationship without, you know, yeah, being without it going south. Carl yeah. Edwards about it. Right, you know? right. I mean, it's just you're, you're both just doing your job. So again, don't. It's it's a, it's another example of people in our business taking themselves way too seriously. You know, just uh, get over it. I hear um, you, I hear you with that. I say that all the time. I'm like, come on, it's just motorcycle racing. Do you know how small Supercross exactly. is? Do you know how small Supercross is in the grand scheme of things? Like really? <laughs> um, yeah. And the other the other part of that is, you know, if if all they ever get is softball questions and kid glove handling, you know, where's the fun in that? You know, that that that's just yeah. boring. That's that's my big thing with NASCAR. They and it's not NASCAR. I don't think so much as the sponsors, the, right. the the guys that are writing those big corporate checks. They just absolutely insist on turning those guys into cardboard cutouts. Right. They don't want any controversy. They don't want them to say anything outrageous. They don't want. And I don't get that. I mean, look around at what's in the media. The more outrageous, the better. Uh, it, 
Yeah. I would think if I were even a mainstream, you know, um, pick, pick a sponsor, I don't know. Yeah. Um, McDonald's. I would whatever, think yeah. that you would want your guy to be outspoken, controversial, the guy people are talking about, the guy in the water cooler moments on, on Monday morning, as opposed to the, oh, yeah, well, gee whiz, I sure had a great car today. I sure do want to thank the boys in the shop. They sure work hard. And then read off a list of 14 sponsors. That's just dull. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah, and I, I do think that you did make it. You made an attempt at wind tunnel the times I watched it. Uh, you made an attempt at wind tunnel to try to get some real information. It didn't always work, but you, you tried. You went there, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, yep. I figure that's my job. I, I, I got to try to ask the questions. And if, if, the, if the guest absolutely refuses to give you anything but plain vanilla, then at least hopeful, my hope mm-hmm. is that the viewers are as discriminating and, and observant as you were and realize, well, Despain's doing his job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess that leaves the guest <laughs> as the reason that this interview is not so, not yeah. so exciting. Yeah. I love, um, I love what you know, they, they've just turned it into part of the culture now to the point that if you, if you're critical of a NASCAR driver, I mean, it's not just the driver and his team. It's likely to be the whole, you know, mm-hmm. the whole series will turn its back on you. Uh, and, and the whole notion that, I, I hate I hate the term television partner. Okay, yeah, yeah, I yeah. would like to, I would lo- I long for the days when the television network was there to cover the sport as a sport, good and bad. You know, uh, the ugly side gets its share of, of the coverage. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't you know? Don't turn it into plain vanilla. Well, now I mean, in the age of the you know four billion dollar rights contract. It's just the biggest suck-up contest in the world. And, again, it just makes it boring. Yeah. It's, it's this plain vanilla, rah-rah stuff. I'm glad I'm not doing it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, glad I, I'm glad I got my job when I did. If I were just starting out today, I don't, I don't think I would want to, to do that business. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I'd want to be part of that. And that's easy to say when I don't have to, mm-hmm. but, right. um, it's just, you know, I didn't, I never, I never got on well with, uh, I, I, I don't want to go too far down this road, <laughs> but Bill France, Bill France Jr. And I were not very good friends. Okay. And part of the reason for that was that on a couple of three occasions, I told it like I thought it was, right. it's, turned out as history has proven that it is the way that it was and bill's attitude was you know that's just not something that you ought yeah. to be out there saying yeah um yeah, and you know the, the, the guys like larry mcreynolds are quick to tell you you know back in the back in the day you would get called into this never happened to me but right. it's, it's happened to a lot of guys including larry's so you get called into bill jr's office and he'd give you that look across the desk and say larry you need NASCAR a lot more than NASCAR needs you. Thanks for coming. See you later. I mean, that was the meeting. It was just, you know. Yeah. And 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 they're, and they're right. I mean, it's it's a giant money making machine for so many people. Um, they they just don't have room for and don't believe they need um, to accept criticism. Certainly not from the likes of me. Yeah. Um, so you know, down the road they go, and they're hugely successful. So how can I, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't say they're doing it wrong, 
But if I'm a fan, I don't want that. I don't want the television network being the cheerleader for NASCAR. I want the television network telling me what's really going on out there. And, you know, there's just not enough of that. I've been called into the office and and been told that, uh, you know, don't you like your job? Why don't why why do you do, why do you say these things? Why do you why don't yeah. why don't you help the series out? And I've always my yeah. res, my response is like I, you're not paying me. I I, I yeah I have to do what I want to make a paycheck. Yeah. But they don't really like that. Well, and and they, and it would be helpful I think if people in that position would realize that in pointing out their weaknesses, you give them the potential to be stronger. Right. You know yeah. you you you've all you know if 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 you really think that's a weakness, fix it. Right. As opposed yeah. to blaming the messenger because the news is bad, but that's that's an age old right. tradition, you know. If you don't if you don't like what you hear, shoot the messenger. Um, uh, did you have an interview on on wind tunnel that went bad? A live one that uh, that went bad, and for whatever reason, does one stand out over time? Yeah, yeah. Scott Bloomquist, uh, the the dirt late model racer, um, got busted for. I don't remember exactly what they charged him with, but mm-hmm. it was you know some some version of, of drug trafficking. Okay, and uh, we had made arrangements to do the interview with him, and I was under the clear impression that he had agreed to talk about that, and <laughs> that was not the case. <laughs> he had not agreed. He had not agreed. Right. So when I asked the question, I thought he was going to come across the desk at me, and Scott is not the kind of guy you would want to have. Yeah, come yeah. across the desk at you, and so that was that was very ugly, and um, it lasted for a while. Um, one of his <laughs> one, one of his fellow drivers at uh, a Christmas party that I happened to be attending walked up to me with his cell phone, handed me the cell phone, and said, "Hey, Scott Bloomquist on the phone. He wants to talk to you." Oh. And I thought it was a joke. Well, it really was Scott Bloomquist, and he was, you know. He was threatening to take my head off. Oh, geez. And uh, so fast forward to MAV-TV. MAV-TV, Lucas Oil, late model dirt series. Scott Bloom was one of the biggest stars. And, I and you know, you yeah. want to have him on my new show. Right. And, uh, you know, Scott's a little older. I'm a little older. I was waiting to see what the what the response from the from the Bloomquist camp was going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember exactly how it was. I had alerted the, the team to the fact that this had happened. Yeah, yeah. This is history. And uh, anyway, long story short, he said, uh, we're not going to go back and cover that ground again, are we? And I said, that is such old news. No, we're not going to talk about that. He said, okay. We had a great, oh, good. great yeah. half hour. I mean, it was one of the best interviews because he's a fascinating guy mm-hmm. he just you know he screwed up and he knew right. he screwed up and he paid his you know debt to society if you will and end of story but uh yeah that was that was probably <laughs> that was... uh that was probably the worst and uh before we let you go I'll ask a few more questions for you um i don't maybe i'm stepping in here and, and you don't have a good relationship with him but to me there's nobody who's done as good, much good for the sport of Supercross as Jeremy McGrath. Um, I was a mechanic when he was winning. Uh, I was, uh, you know, a lonely private, a lowly privateer mechanic, and the guy would speak to me like I was his buddy, even though he was the yep. number one rider in the world. He, when I moved into the media gig, he's been nothing but great. I see him now, great guy. Uh, how nice was Jeremy McGrath to deal with, and how much did he build the sport up? And 
And and and what a guy for for guys like us now, what a perfect ambassador for the sport of Supercross. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. And you know, again, this is one of those interesting situations where I didn't know Jeremy very mm-hmm. well. I mean, I very rarely dealt with Jeremy face to face. Right. Even though week in week out, I was talking, <laughs> about, talking about him. Right. Incredible feats, and, and hoping that people would believe that he and I were best friends. I suppose. <laughs> uh, but I was never at the races. You know, I was always off covering some other race on the weekend, and then going to a studio on Tuesday afternoon and and voicing the race like I was there live, right. which is just one of the one of the deceits of television. But I never got to know Jeremy that well during the peak of his career, mm-hmm. uh, I will tell you that of all the people that I've interviewed on the new show, his was one of my favorite interviews just because of his candor. Um, again, going going back to that business of not trying to sugarcoat it, he, right. you know, he, he was very open about the fact that he doesn't like the fact that Ricky Carmichael has the greatest of all time nickname. He doesn't think that he is the greatest of all time because he's not the greatest supercross racer. I am, as Jeremy right, put it. Right. And, you know, it, that kind of candor is refreshing. Obviously, what he's gone through with his family, his wife, and all the rest of that is just, you know, it's great stuff. And, in, you know, in that it had a happy ending or has had a happy yeah. ending. Um, so I think he's everything you described and more. I have a great deal of respect for uh, for Jeremy and, and everything that he's accomplished. He was just the perfect guy, the 1-800 commercials, too, and, you know, all of that kind of thing. He just really... At the right time. Yeah. Right, yeah. Again, a much better example of a guy in the right place at the right time than, than you know, the one I gave you earlier about me. I mean, he, <laughs> here was a sport that needed... If, 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 you, if you were the promoter and you sat down at the start of his rookie year and said, you know what this sport needs? It needs this. Right. And laid out the, the, the profile yeah. for the next champion, it would be Jeremy. I mean, he was just perfect. And uh, it's great to see him enjoying the you know yeah. fruits of that success. Yeah, it was like he was dominating, and everybody just waited for that trick. Like, oh, and he's got to have a trick at the end when to celebrate when he wins. You know, the knack knack, and it was just like you yeah. said, you drew it yeah. up. It was perfect. Um, yeah. yeah. Was was there a was there a race that you called over the years? And good, sweet Jesus, that's a lot of them. But is there one or two that stands out? Um, obviously, like you said, you're just calling the action. You're not there, but something that uh, was just amazing for you—a feat, a race, anything like that—a crash. I suppose that, like a lot of people, that the, the Bailey and Johnson Anaheim race probably, mm-hmm. you know, that that that's I don't remember the year eighty six. That's probably yeah, as good a race as there ever was, right? Um, you know, and and Ricky talked about that when he was on the show, and the extent to which that made him the star that he became Mm -hmm. because that was the night that he learned that he was not the athlete that he needed to be. Uh, He had the speed, but he was going to have to train as hard as David, harder than David, if he wanted to be able to, you know, to have the endurance uh, to, to be a champion. And, uh, no, I thought that was I thought that was an interesting insight. And those two guys were just, you know, granted neither one 
posting the numbers that uh, you know that Jeremy did. Right. In, in both cases, you know, because of injury, you could argue that that either of them might have gone on to have that kind of career. But um, you know, they were just they were two really really special guys, and and to see a race like that between the two of them, that's that's kind of the essence of the sport to me. Mm-hmm. When you you know you don't need 18 guys in a pack now. That going back to NASCAR, you know, they think they got to have three wide every lap and all that. You take two guys. You take Richard Petty and David Pearson and put them a lap out in front. I almost, I almost said, you know, even though it's a motorcycle show, I think the coolest race I ever saw was the 1976 Daytona 500. Right. When those those two guys were literally a lap up on the field and crashed coming off coming, the last corner. Yeah, coming on the first race of the year. Right, you know, the right. two most powerful personalities in the sport. It doesn't get any better than that. And, uh, you know, Ricky and David was a, a bit like that. It was, it, mm-hmm. it, I get goosebumps remembering it because it just, it just had that kind of magic. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, Dave, um, thanks for, thanks for doing this trip. Uh, man, you want to talk about a guy that's seen it and done it and, been there and called the action and and yeah in all the sports all motorsports uh it's you 40 40 40 years of uh yeah. enjoying the benefits of dumb luck and utter bullshit man. It's hard to <laughs> exactly <be. laughs> maybe that's what i'll call this the dumb luck and utter bullshit podcast with dave spain <laughs> feel free I, I like it uh my, i really appreciate it it's been a lot of fun my only request <laughs> is can we do another one in a little while i got more questions and more more stories that i, I need to hear so sure i got nothing but time on my hands now you know you get old that's one of the great <laughs> benefits you just sit down and re- try to remember all the things that happened way back in the past yeah uh dave Spain show on mav tv uh check it out uh th- what do you, what's your schedule for that show when you pick it up again 8.30 Sunday night, Eastern and Pacific time. We're about a third of the way into uh, this year's new episodes. Uh, this very weekend, Labor Day weekend, Jeff Emick yeah, will be the guest. I saw that. And I want to see that. That was another really fun interview. Uh, now, here's a, here's a guy that, you know, again, I didn't get to know him well at the time that he was in his, uh, you know, in his prime because I was off covering other forms of racing, mm-hmm. but I called a bunch of races that he was in. Uh, I, I interviewed him enough to know how painfully difficult that process was for him because of his stuttering. Right. Uh, to, to see him overcome that, to hear him talk about how he overcame that, how he you know, got past the silly little drug screw up in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his moment of standing in the rain at the Paris Supercross, trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. There's a, there's a lot of meat in that one. And, uh, if you, if you care about the great names of Supercross, I would suggest that that'd be a show worth catching this weekend, Sunday night. Yeah, absolutely. One of, yeah, like you said, now he's, you know, the color guy for, for Supercross. And that's amazing when you look back at his early interviews. So, um, Great job by Jeff. Well, thanks, Dave. Thank you for uh, doing the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast presented by Fox Racing. Great stories, great time. Uh, thanks again. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. See you. This has been the BTOsports.com podcast show presented by Fox Racing.
Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Bad Boy, Rick Johnson. I looked down and my hand was junk. I mean, yeah. it was sitting over to the side. The tendons were jerking in weird places. And my biggest disappointment with Danny Sorbic is that he never said sorry. Because Danny and I were friends, and we've never talked since. Brian Lunas. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil Cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Dave Arnold. And McGill was all, you know how he did the big pancake thing? Right. And, right. and he's got the thing. He's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't have been, you know, yeah. if, if it hadn't have been there. The Hurricane Bob Hanna. I love the guy. I don't dislike I think he's the greatest competitor this sport ever had. That absolutely 100% in my mind. I firmly believe that statement I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Poland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike. You're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays than they were in those days, they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like beating a dead horse, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did. Everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled pick and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny O'Mara. Stuff that you could you sit there if you didn't even want to ride it, you just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in. I really do. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes store to enjoy these and over 500 more great motocross podcasts. The days and the months and the years.